Oh, ladies and gentlemen. I had to get a little bit spicy. Just a little bit. I'll see him bass at Drake's pop. And I had the audacity to agree with him. In the words, Public Enemies Chuck D, who is hip hop, bring the noise. Event Podcast Network. I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. Yeah, I just had to get a little spicy on you. You know what I mean? Like just, just, just. I felt, you know, a mixture of vindication and just uh, again, just spiciness. I just wanted to be a bit, um, a bit debate broy. You know what I mean? Just, just say so like, it's okay to be wrong, guys. It's okay to, okay to be wrong. You know what I mean? And. Uh, you know, I made a, so what I'm talking about is an article I made, um, and also I talked about the ITD, if you want to go spin that as well, at the end of that, uh, at the end of the Cool G Rap episode, um, but I also did a, an article, quick, you know, quick 600, you know what I mean, just, uh, the right version of a quick 16, just quick 600, um, on it, and I think it was pretty succinct, you know what I mean, pretty straight to the point, pretty fun, um, fun little read, to do, especially for me, I've, I've I enjoyed it immensely to 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 write over the past couple of days. And whilst I whilst I had the fun, um, I also am acutely aware of how lacking this conversation is in a ton of ways. So I didn't really help, quote unquote, um, to further the argument. Instead, I just, um, you know, just, uh, you know, I just, I just kept it fun. But there is a serious element towards this argument, and for me, it is it could be put in two words: um, culture preservation. Hip hop culture needs to be preserved, and I'm not talking about, you know, the the hip hop museum or the UK hip hop museum, which might be coming down soon uh, in the in the near future. Um, I would be part of that, to be honest, somehow. Don't know how, but I'd like to be a part of that. Um, but yeah, I'm not talking about that kind of stuff where, you know, it's having, you know, uh, copies of the source in, in, like, Perspex glasses. I'm not talking about that kind of preservation, right? I'm not talking about museum preservation. I'm talking about cultural preservation. I'm talking about valuing the things that should be valued, you know? And I, I mean this, you know... I mean this when I say, like, when I see Drake's pop, I don't see him as a person that is furthering hip-hop in any fashion. Maybe not anymore anyway. Um, I don't think he's done anything artistically, um, not much artistic evolution since Views, to be honest. And that when was that, when did that drop? 2016? It's nearly 10 years. It's nearly 10 years ago. Um... It's been a while, and I said in the article, if, if uh, I don't care about Drake's artistry, because he clearly doesn't either, um, and I feel like there needs to be um, more value put into the hip-hop artists that actually, you know, push the culture forward, and not just, um, and not just hit-making, you know, a lot of people can make hits, 
um, and that's fine, but there needs to be more. And yeah, I just don't feel like people do enough um, in terms of preservation, in terms of preserving what hip hop was in its essence and what it should be. And and I don't think people highlight the or even embody the best qualities of what hip hop is. And you know that sound that all sounds pretty elitist of me, and it is in some ways. But you know I've been doing I've been for years now been been trying to do the reading trying to listen to the records and trying to read the words and i just don't see i just don't see drake as hip-hop anymore um he ain't playing he isn't playing the same game hip-hop artists are playing he's playing the pop artist game and that's fine but it's going to take a while for you know the average hip-hop fan, for for fuck's sake, publications, award shows, it's going to take a while for, you know, for them to catch up and actually realise that hip-hop, hip, with hip-hop now being pop, it, it needs to be, there needs to be a, there needs to be a break-off somewhere. And I don't think it is a, I don't think it's a, a reach to say Drake isn't hip-hop when it comes down to that. But anyway... I'll drop the link to that if you want to read it um, in the full show notes. But with that said, we have a show to do, so let's get into that. We have a Two Societies, Health and a Life segment for you. And format is before we begin. Email, socials, uh, writing. <laughs> of course, the writing. <laughs> I mean, the, right, I'll, 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 the writing link's there. But uh, yeah, just spin that, click that, and then you'll see the piece first thing there. So... Go go spin that instead of me throwing similar links in the full description. So just go peep the writing. But anyway, that too. Uh, music and also podcast at 5 VPN. All of there for you in the full show notes. And with that said, let the beat drop. Let's get into the show. In a week where landlords will be forced to fix mouldy homes within 24 hours after tragic death of toddler, um, of a toddler, and it's unfortunate that it has to come to come to that. Um, it's unfortunate that we have to tell landlords that mould is not good. Um, yeah, just demonic behaviour. Fuck landlords. Um, huge ancient lost city is found in East Ecuador. Um, US and UK lead airstrikes against Houthi rebels sites in Yemen, which just adds on to the eight-year bombing campaign that um, the UK has um, nicely given uh, weapons to Saudi Arabia so they can do that bombing campaign. Um, so that's that's fun. Now they're just doing it themselves, just getting it done. Um, shout out to Keir Starmer once again, who goes full Tory light and basically just agrees with Rishi Sunak on that decision. Um, Taiwan elects Lai Ching Tei, or Tei, I think, with T E, so Tei, um, who actually rejects China's territorial claim as president. So spicy. And lastly, people in at least 121 country uh, cities in 45 countries across uh, the world participated in pro-Palestine rallies. And I was listening. I was watching a um, video essay about um, Palestine, and um, you know there was a point made about you know. What about the Congo? What about Sudan? And all that stuff. And 
I feel like I've done a disservice there. And um, I'm going to make an effort at some point to, you know, talk about Congo, talk about Sudan and talk about Africa a lot more. Um, I'm going to make a kind of like a long term endeavor to do so. Um, I just need to find the right spaces um, that actually talk about them um, in good detail. So consider the hunt on on that front. But that's it. Let's jump right into the health segments. And this one is about... Well, the NHS. I can't believe it. I'm talking about the NHS again. can't believe it. Um, this is an article by Nick Dearden uh, via Declassified UK. And uh, it's simply called, If We Want to Save the NHS, We Need to Take on Big Pharma. So obviously I talk a lot about you know how the government has kind of just sold off the NHS over the past 10, 15 years. And, um, you know, Big Pharma is obviously those people. Those are the people that are taking it. And uh, you've seen ambulances that are not quite ambulances they're you know supported or, or um in 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 in, uh, in partnership with the nhs and it's just like that's a private company um but anyway it is what it is that's where we're at let's get into this cycle and see what we can information we can get and there's a lot of them in this first paragraph immediately over the last decade nhs england spent 13 billion on just 10 super expensive drugs there you go <laughs> easy dude easy stats already uh, good information already. The list includes medicines which treat cancer, blood clots, and one anti-inflammatory drug called Humira. Uh, where do they where do they find where do they make these names up? Like, it's just random ass names, um, which is used to treat arthritis and Crohn's disease. That alone cost the NHS 2.7 billion over 10 years. The cost of producing each of these drugs was a tiny fraction of that price. Experts estimate Humira uh, could be produced for somewhere between 3 and 8% of the price NHS paid. And that includes a reasonable profit for the producer. Given pharma giant ABV, A-B-B-V-I-E, uh, the producer for Humira, has sold more than $200 billion worth of the drug globally, dollars, um, its profits are huge. But then, this is a highly profitable industry since 1999. Uh, drug companies have enjoyed more than three times the average profit margin of the average U.S. company. Between 2016 and 2020, the top 14 drug companies, this includes household names like Pfizer and Johnson Johnson, as well as British corporation GSK, handled more than half a trillion dollars to their shareholders. In fact, the story gets even more alarming when you realize that AbbVie didn't invent Humira. Rather, it is based on technology developed at Cambridge University, with the drug itself created by a spin-off company. AbV effectively bought the rights to produce the drug, spent a long time working out how to extend its monopoly, and jacked up the prices. The story is not a one-off. In researching my new book, uh, I discovered a great myth at the heart of the way we make medicines. We still assume the drug giants, despite all the scandal and profiteering, actually invent the medicines that keep us healthy. Actually, they do no such thing. In reality, the corporate behemoths behave more like hedge funds than medical research companies, buying up intellectual property and doing everything they can to squeeze profit from it, whatever the cost to society at large. Big Pharma emerged in the post-war period as companies specializing in different parts of medicine. Supply chain uh, merged into single corporations, able to take care of every step of the medical research process, from research to the marketing of drugs. A series of blockbuster discoveries, including antibiotics, steroids, vitamin supplements, and tranquilizers, brought incredible wealth and power to these corporations. To hold on to this wealth and ward off uh, regulation, the industry and its lobbyists created two winning arguments. The first that 
uh, was that sure medicines were expensive but that's because they cost a lot to research damage those profits and you'll have no medicines they also appealed directly to politicians telling them that the pharmaceutical industry represented the cutting edge of scientific innovation damage that industry and you damage your economy as a whole and the power your country holds in the world politicians bought it in the 1980s and 90s, a new form of economic thinking was embedded in the international economy, and it was the powerful ph pharmaceutical industry that was in the vanguard of these changes. Corporate executives realized it was the monopolies they held on medicines, uh, their intellectual property, which really delivered their profits. Factory staff, research budgets, all could be cut back. What mattered was monopolies they owned, and they could buy those. The industry went into overdrive, lobbying for tougher, longer and deeper monopoly on monopolies on medicines. This included extending US-style monopoly rights around the world through an agreement at the newly formed World Trade Organization, uh, known as TRIPS. The US was the most vociferous proponent of TRIPS, but the UK was also a cheerleader. Oh, wow. Kill surprise, U UK dick riding again. Wow, can't, can't believe it. In the years that followed, Britain became an even more arch proponent, being one of the few countries in the world to block pandemic exemption to trips, which would have allowed countries across the world to produce COVID-19 vaccines and undermine the severe disparity of access. Of course they did. The TRIPS agreement was a huge problem for many countries, particularly in the global south. Up to this point, one of the most important benefits of trade for most countries was copying and learning from techniques and technologies developed uh, in more economically advanced countries. TRIPS cut this off by forcing countries to abide by rules which make corporate ownership of technologies sacrosanct. I love that word, sacrosanct. It's a great word. Uh, great way to say sacrosanct. It's a great way uh, to say Turning uh, countries into renters of important new technologies, it empowered those who already owned ideas, shifting power from the south to the north, from workers to capital, from manufacturers to finance. This new thinking changed the industry itself. In a previous age, big pharma companies had profiteered, unethically pushed pills, corrupted medical professionals, and over-medicalized us. The opioid crisis in the United States stands today as one of the starkest examples of this scandalous behavior. Purdue Pharma, owned by the Sackler family, created an incredibly strong and addictive end-of-life pain relief called OxyContin, and then uh, proceed, proceeded to convince doctors, academics, and patients that it was a go-to medicine for even moderate pain with virtually no chance of addiction. Over-prescriptions proceeded to unleash an epidemic of addiction, which killed hundreds of thousands of people. But underneath it all, these companies did actually invent medicines. Today it's different. Rather than inventing new medicines, Big Pharma buys up research done by others. The public sector, in order to ensure we actually get useful, med useful medicines, spends a small fortune on research, often carried out by universities or small biotech companies. But rather than putting conditions on this research, they effectively privatise it, allowing it to be sold off to the giants, who can then charge whatever the market will bear. In the run-up to COVID-19, Big Pharma had done next to nothing researching pathogens that might cause a pandemic, even though coronaviruses had caused epidemics before, so the public sector stepped in. But then, as always, the research was also was was handled over, handed over to big businesses, uh, big business to actually get the vaccines out the door and into arms. The result was massive inequality in who got the vaccines and who didn't, as corporations like Pfizer and Moderna limited global supply by refusing to share vaccine some know-how with anyone else. See, I remember um, 
it's kind of all reminds me of like um um monopolies in uh the golden era of Hollywood and how that was kind of broken up because you know the um if you if you're unaware of cinema history in the US um there was a time um in you know like you know post just uh, just after like post war and you know before the uh, before like uh, before the 70s 60s right i forget the particular year when it stopped but yes uh, before the 60s as to say um for that kind for that time for that 50 year period of hollywood being what it was from like you know the 20s onwards 20s to the 50s 60s there were five literally called the big five um companies studio companies and it's different now in some ways but um it's become kind of like you know um, it's, it's kind of come back towards that kind of thing but they had an official monopoly back in the day um, in that they had um, what we call vertical integration uh, where they make the films and they also obviously market the films but they also own the cinemas that show the films um, and that they don't do that no more um, but you know that was just a little part of um, breaking it down and I'm just I'm just thinking about that as I read this because it just seems like this is um, this is like film monopoly, but just way on a, on like the largest <laughs> the largest possible scale, which is fucking healthcare. You know, what I mean, it's not even it's not just who watches it's not just filmmaking. You know, what I mean, it's not just the you know the finance of filmmaking, which is obviously big business, but not as much as healthcare you know what I'm saying? it's just well not as important as healthcare it's just uh crazy but anyway just my thought anyway let's continue even the u.s administration was shocked when pfizer tried to hold its ransom <laughs> ransom with a price tag of a hundred dollars a dose on a vaccine that seemed to cost somewhere between 0.95 and four dollars to produce or 94 95 cents they say um, while they didn't get away with charging such a price the u.s paid several times the vaccine's production costs a price which has since tripled in the uk pfizer is estimated to have made nearly two billion in profits from cash-strapped nhs in the first year of its va- vaccine rollout while more recent prices have been more constrained in the uk than the u.s big pharma is now fighting hard against a scheme that allows the nhs to limit medicine price hikes covid is far from the end of the story the medicines owned if not invented by the big pharmaceutical corporations today are those drugs that can best help them rinse the public. It's a situation which is completely unsustainable. Quite apart uh, from the stress it's putting on the NHS, this model means key medical problems are getting no attention at all. Antibiotic resistance could well lead into tens of millions deaths a year in coming decades, but it's simply not profitable enough for corporations which are used to making eye-watering returns. Former Goldman Sachs chair Jim O'Neill was so frustrated by the industry as in action, he suggested nationalising it. In Britain, the Labour opposition has said the sustainability of the NHS is a key mission. If they really believe that, they will have to confront the power of the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, I bet they will really put their foot in it and not quiver. Um, Each of the 10 most expensive drugs to the NHS benefited from work by scientists from public institutions, public funding, charitable funding, or a mixture of all three. What's more, these 10 drugs represent a small fraction of the UK's overall outlay on medicines, which reached an annual spend of over £17 billion last year. All of this will mean standing up to the power of Big Pharma, and that will entail a fight. 
Labour has promised to boost research and development spending. We'll see how that goes. But they'll need to do more to throw this money at a dysfunctional, uh, dysfunctional industry if we want to develop cutting-edge medicines. First of all, they need to they will need to see off Big Pharma's campaign to roll back the power of the NHS to constrain prices. Then they will need to use this cash to transform this, the economy of medicines, for example, using strict public interest conditions, including a prohibition on the private ownership of any resulting intellectual property. Facts. They also need to look at public manufacturing to break Big Pharma's stranglehold on drug production. In the US, in response to the price gouging Big Pharma gets away with, California is now working to produce insulin with public money, which will be available at cost price. Labor will need to do the same. Finally, research, development, and manufacturing all needs to be better dispersed around the globe, giving a handful of countries a stranglehold has failed the majority of the world. Supporting the southern countries in developing industrial strategies rather than crushing them through institutions like the WTO is essential, and actually in the interests of nearly all of us, as we saw in the pandemic. Sadly, there's little sign. Labour gets the scale of the challenge to date. But here they can learn from the US, uh, where President Joe Biden has had to go to war with Big Pharma because even fairly moderate reforms, like giving his government the power to negotiate medicine prices, has led to legal challenges by the industry against this administration. This time, he tweeted recently, we beat Big Pharma. If Labour wants to save the NHS, they need to learn the lessons from the US and get serious about taking on drug barons. And um, I'll leave it there with a simple sentence. Good luck with that. for one of two society segments and we're going to um, go back to back with them and this one is about Martin Luther King Jr. I feel like there's always, always those you know people that um, the reason why they're remembered in history or remembered now for our history is because they talk about the things that still ring true and still are worth learning you know we tend to well <laughs> We, well, the certain education systems don't tend to learn about, don't t- don't tend to teach about the things we need to learn. Um, but um, people, singular people, are always remembered for certain things, um, whether it be you know skewed or otherwise, or correctly seen, they are remembered regardless. And um, obviously, MLK is one of the you know most notable names uh, in, you know, history, right? <laughs> in recent history, for obvious reasons. Um, and I think I think this is um, a good place uh, to, you know, gauge that um, in his talking about the Middle East. And um, in his case, it was the Vietnam War, but we can easily just move that over to the Middle East and actually see where we, where we, where we should go. Um, on that front, he's still providing the pathway um, in some ways. So this is via the conversation written by friend of 5e, Dr. Hajar Yazdia, and it's called My Luther King Jr.'s Moral Stance Against the Vietnam War, offers lessons on how to fight for peace in the Middle East. Let's jump right in. 
since the onset of Israel's deadly assaults on Gaza and the West Bank after the October 7th uh, Hamas attack, debates have risen, um, have arisen among historians and media pundits about Martin Luther King Jr.'s stance, stance, stance on Israel and its conflicts with Palestinians. Some claim King was a fierce Zionist and point to his speech on March 25th, 1968, before the annual convention of the Ra- rabbinical Ra- rabbi, rab- like rabbi, but inical at the end, so rabbinical or rabbinical uh, assembly. Quote, peace of Israel means security, and we must stand with all of our might to protect its right to exist, its, in- its territorial integrity, King said. I see Israel as one of the great outposts of democracy in the world, and a marvelous example of what can be done. How desert land can almost, uh, how desert land almost can be transformed into an oasis of brotherhood and democracy. Unquote. Others, like American and Israeli scholar Martin Kramer, have pointed to King's views on Palestinian rights to their homeland. During a 1967 interview with ABC News, shortly after Israel launched the six-day war against Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, and seized control of land in Gaza and the West Bank. King said that Israel should return Palestinian lands. Quote, I think for the ultimate peace and security of the situation, it will probably be necessary for Israel to give up this conquered territory, because to hold on to it would only exacerbate the tensions and deepen the bitterness of the Arabs, he said. As a scholar who researches social movements, racial politics and democracy, I believe there is a larger story beyond King's stance on Israel and Palestinians. That story is on King's views of war and his, and his courage to stand for peace. This is the story of the anti-war king who understood that violence begets violence, and that the political courage to speak for peace is essential to, to democracy. For King, joining the peace movement was tantamount uh, to walking a political tightrope. I really want to say tantamount like French. Tantamount. Uh, to walking a political tightrope. On one hand, the civil rights movement had a great supporter in US President Lyndon B. Johnson, who signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and 65. But LBJ was also at the heart of the escalation of the war in Vietnam, and many believed King's anti-war statements could and would be used against him. The US government's hypocrisy in supporting the Vietnam War was not lost on King. In 65, 61% of Americans supported US military involvement. At the same time, King was asking hard questions about Johnson's wartime decision-making and unmet promises of social uplift through his Great Society programs. King wondered how a nation could drop tons of bombs and napalm on civilians in the name of peace and freedom while violently subjugating its own black citizens. How could a nation spend so much money on war, King asked, when it could not feed or protect its own people? Quote, the promises of the Great Society have been shot down on the battlefield of Vietnam. Now that I've heard, uh, this is the first time I've heard the term Great Society in this context, and now I'm wondering, is that where David Cameron got Big Society from? Remember that? Remember Big Society? I, I, I still don't know what that meant. Um, so I'm wondering if it came from that, but I don't know. I don't. I don't see. I don't see David Cameron and his people as that creative. But anyway, um, uh, promises of great society have been shot down on the battlefield of Vietnam. King said in a speech in Beverly Hills on February 25th, 1967, "Billions are liberally expended for this ill-considered war." Dot dot dot. The security we profess to seek in foreign adventures, foreign adventures, we will lose in our decaying cities. The bombs of Vietnam explode at home. They destroy the hopes and possibilities for a decent America. Unquote. 
The Johnson administration argued that military force was essential to protect South Vietnam from the encroachment of communism from the north. <laughs> so, it's just, it's just, it's just funny. It's like, oh, communism's coming. Oh, God, bomb them. <laughs> it's just like the logic is, <laughs> we're protecting you. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Um, as Johnson saw it, North Vietnam and its National Liberation Front were a threat to democracy in Southeast Asia. King's advisers plead, uh, did with him not to speak out and argue that the political costs would be too high. More important, most importantly, they reminded King that there was more enough, more than enough work to do in the US to end poverty and score equal rights for black citizens. But King ultimately broke with his advisers and President Johnson. Johnson. In 1967, King followed the lead of his wife and anti-war activist Coretta Scott King and began speaking out. In March 67, King led his first anti-war march in Chicago. At the rally, he called on peace activists to organise, quote, as effectively as the Warhawks, unquote. A month later, on April 4th, 1967, King gave the speech at the Riverside, uh, Riverside Church in New York City that changed the course of the last year of his life. Beyond Vietnam, a time to break the silence. In that revolutionary speech, King described how he was morally compelled to speak out against the war. In the days and weeks after, he would lose masses of supporters, black and white alike. He lost hard-earned political allies, hard-earned political allies, including President Johnson. King was also shunned and denounced by 168 newspapers that questioned King's failure to condemn the enemy, fueling long-standing rumours about communist ties. King had no regrets. He understood the difficulty of speaking out against the war. Quote, even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, Men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war, he said. For King, a preacher at heart, silence had become betrayal. Calling the US, quote, the greatest purveyor of violence today, unquote, King said the soul of America, quote, can never be saved so long as it destroys the deepest hopes of men the world over, unquote. He warned that America had lost moral authority abroad and derided, quote, the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. Ooh, does that ring true now? Fuck me. <laughs> King pointed to the role of the US in prohibiting uh, the realization of a, quote, revolutionary government seeking self-determination, unquote, in Vietnam. Most poignantly, in that 67 speech at the Riverside Church, King detailed the devastating costs of the Vietnam War and described millions of children and women who were killed by American bombs and bullets and the poor masses who were spared slaughter only to face a slow, painful death by disease and starvation. Then King turned, the, turned to the so-called enemy, the North Vietnamese. Quote, if we do not condone their actions, King said in a speech, surely we must see that the men we supported pressed them to their violence. Surely we must see that our own computerized plans of destruction simply dwarf their greatest acts, unquote. Then King called for a ceasefire. King's words resonate today. Unlike in King's time, 61% of potential voters support a permanent ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Anti-war protests abound across the nation and around the world. How can the US, as King would ask the nation, move forward from here? In the 1960s, King grappled with this very question. On the one hand, he felt a deep solidarity with the Jewish struggle against persecution. And on the other hand, he rejected the violent occupation of Palestinian lands that would run counter to the noble cause. He saw resolution through a, a commitment <laughs> a communist a commitment to breaking the cycles of violence and practicing radical peace. Quote, 
a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighbourly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class and nation, unquote. Nearly 60 years later, the fight for King's radical revolution of values, where human life and dignity were the most valued, still rages. But as the life of King reminds us, speaking out for justice can be costly. Yet he would also say that for the cost of remaining silent is far greater. And I really like that last line right there, that silence is kind of far greater, right? And obviously um, that is a powerful statement to say, considering King got clapped. Um, And do I want to get clapped for saying things? No, of course I don't. But, you know, there are people in this world that do get clapped over saying certain things and uh, they get shunned. Still, to this day, in 2024, people still get shunned and blackballed and etc, etc, and lose their jobs for saying something, and or for, or for just, or for even just the simplest shit, not even just like, um, not even being, you know, overtly critical about Israel um, in the ways um, a lot of people I respect have. But even just saying, you know, big up Palestine, or just, or, you know, for, or, 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 or from saying from the river to the sea, oh boy, oh boy, the way that shit has been fucking hijacked is disgusting. It's depressing and disgusting how hijacked that term has been. Um, and we're actually going to get into another term in the next segment. So moving, we're going to move swiftly on um, to that because I feel you know these kind of go hand in hand with the concept of moral panic and the um, and how just I don't know, just how how the um, how the leading voice, you know, you know who I'm talking about, the leading voice, when I say the leading voice, right, how the leading voices um, manage to take a term that regular people don't even know yet and completely distort it. People, I didn't know what From the River to the Sea meant until last year. I didn't know what um, I didn't know what freaking uh, critical race theory was until that got in the news and immediately got poisoned by the right wing. And as we segue, DEI as well. And I'd just like to say before we continue, the link to my interview with Dr. Hajar Yastia is going to be in the full show notes as well, just so you know. Anyway, let's jump right into this one. So this one is via Rolling Stone and uh, written by Miles Klee with a K-L-E-E. Um, and it's called A Scary Future for Them. Uh, Elon and Pals Turn DEI into Far Right's New Boogeyman. And I find it fascinating if you actually knew, have you even heard of DEI until I just said that? Because... I didn't know what DEI was until maybe last week, so it's um, it's, it's just one of those things, it's just immediately been hijacked, and the only reason we know about it is in a negative context, um, and it just doesn't make sense, because, I mean, we're going to get it, we'll, we'll get to it, we'll get to it, so let's, ju- let's jump right in, because it's going to explain a lot. Not even two weeks into the new year, and it looks as though far-right agitators have honed in on the scapegoat of the season, DEI, shorthand for diversity equity and inclusion. Let's stop right there. Diver- so, okay, let's break down those words. Diversity, which obviously means 
diversity, right? Yeah, <laughs> I think you guys, I think we know what diversity means, right? Equity, which is an important word, important word. Equality and equity are two different things. Um, I, I'm always reminded of that, um, of that image um, that someone that I just kept seeing now and again over the years, where it was displaying the differences between equity and uh, and uh, equality. Equality means we're on the same box, right? So I think the picture was like um, three people trying to look over a fence, right? So there was a tall person who didn't need a box. There was a slightly shorter person who needed one box. And then there was a small person who needed two boxes in, 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 in efforts to actually see over the fence. Equality means that everyone gets a box, right? Now, big person doesn't need a box, but he's got a box because quality, right? Middle person has a box and he's happy with that box. Little person is not happy with the box because he needs one more box. But but equality states that he needs that he gets one box. Equity is different. Equity is so everyone gets what they need. So small person gets two boxes, middle person gets one box, and the big person has the option. <laughs> I'm sure, in some ways, you know what I mean? In terms of, let's just say, like, healthcare, for example, has the option to get a box, but he doesn't need a box, so he doesn't get a box, right? That's equity. The fact that this, and obviously inclusion means incl- being inclusive, you know, so it's, it's, I don't, hopefully I don't have to explain that one. Um, so the fact that these three words have been already poisoned is depressing. Um, and... Yeah, anyway, let's continue. Diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and policies that can be implemented in workplaces and educational institutions. So this is about workplace, educational institutions, universities being one, of obviously, and we'll get into that, obviously, in more detail on this one. Although long included in the litany of vilified concepts and conservatives like to complain about, from work, from wokeness to gender fluidity to critical race theory, DEI has taken a new place of prominence after being scapegoated for two in- incidents that made headlines in early 2024. One was the ouster of Harvard University President Claudine Gay, the first black person to lead the Ivy League school just six months after she assumed the role. The other was an Alaska Airlines flight during which a door plug of the Boeing 737 MAX 9 jet blew off the fuselage, causing cabin depressurization and necessitating an emergency landing. Originally, neither story had any uh, any to do with DEI. The initial calls for gay's recognition stemmed from her perceived failure to address anti-Semitism on the Harvard campus. It was only after she faced the allegations of plagiarism that would ultimately uh, unseat her that prominent Christ, uh, I'll see how that prominent critics, including hedge fund billionaire Bill Ackman and right-wing activist Christopher Rufo, um, who first accused her of academic misconduct, argued that she wasn't qualified for the job of president and had been appointed solely because of her race and gender. As for the malfunctioning door plug on the Boeing, it was manufactured by Spirit Aerosystems, a company already facing a lawsuit over quote-unquote quality failures of its parts. Yet Elon Musk, now closely aligned with the reactionary right, implied in a tweet that DEI hiring at Boeing was to blame, and Chaya Rachik, known as uh, known on Twitter for her anti-LGBTQ hate account libs of TikTok, fumed that Alaska Airlines was jeopardizing passenger safety by focusing on diversity and inclusion 
and, quote, making their planes gay. No fucking way they said that. There ain't no fucking way they said that seriously in the tweet. Oh, for fuck's sake, they legit said that in a in a in a quote. That's just So this is the tweet. In case you're wondering what Alaska at Alaska Air has been focusing on is diversity and inclusion, making their planes gay and having drag queen flight attendants. If you're on an Alaska plane, just pray for their diversity hires, don't screw up, and they're putting the same energy into safety. Okay. No. Okay, I've got my fresh dose of brain worms for the month. Um, this moral panic, DEI consultants tell Rolling Stone, mirrors the unfounded paranoia in recent years about critical race theory or CRT, big up my initials, being taught into being taught to young students. CRT involves advanced academic concepts introduced at the undergraduate or graduate level. K through 12 school teachers have been largely baffled at the objections from parents to something that wasn't even part of their curriculum. The conflict was cynically invented in part by Rufo. The backlash to DEI experts say can likewise be described as outrage at societal changes that are not actually occurring at significant levels. Quote, what's really absurd about these attacks, says Amber Madison, who co-founded the DEI consulting firm Peopleism in 2017, is that, continuing the quote, when you actually look at statistics, we are making horrible progress, she adds. No women and people of colour and people who are underrepresented are maybe marginally better off 10 years ago. But numbers are not moving enough. Uh, uh, but numbers are not moving and they're not moving fast enough. Sorry, unquote. Mass also says that business owners and executives who claim to be quote-unquote passionate about implementing DEI practices can balk at her system- uh, systematic approach and instead ask for a one-off training session that is far less effective. Oh, this is the issue with people, man. They don't they don't want to change. They don't want to change. They just want to act like they're changing. They just like they like the look of change. They don't actually do it. Matthew Florence, a DI consultant who has mostly worked with not profits, including education, housing, and arts groups, agrees that the supposed crisis is vastly overblown. Not only because DEI doesn't have the negative effects described by conservatives, but because it is far less institutionalized than its critics imagine. Quote all of the promises of promotion of DEI after the big police cases, particularly the killing of George Floyd, by a police officer Derek Chauvin, 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 whatever, are starting to drop off, Florence says. The non-profit sector definitely wants to continue the trend, but the money is not always there to follow through, and the agency is gone. It's definitely ironic that they would step up the attacks when things are simmering down, Florence adds, but he suspects that DEI is, quote, a bigger problem, a bigger boogeyman than CRT, which is a harder concept to understand, unquote. Florence also says that the, quote, new attacks on DI seem to me to be more in line with the attacks on diversity in general, from the attacks on diversity in college admissions, to the attacks on university presidents, to the general whining about white men in particular not being hired, to the attacks around immigration. Uh, it, feel, it feels like an overall last-ditch effort to preserve a more white-centered United States culture. Unquote. Rachel DeCoste, a writer, educator, and social policy expert from Ottawa, Canada, who leads workshops and lectures on topics including anti-racism and diversity, agrees that scare tactics around DEI are more broadly effective than anti-CRT propaganda. I think that's their strategy, she says. They were losing a lot of people with CRT. If you ask Joe Blow on the street what does it mean, they usually weren't able to define it. DEI is widespread. It's the uh, subtitle of somebody at your workplace, and it's an easier, closer target. But Dacost also notes uh, notes that the anti-DI surge is really just an echo of the grievances voiced about similar attempts 
to foster social equality uh, in the past. More than 15 years ago, she spoke at conferences about diversity. Uh, that was the term back then, she explains. I'm sure you could go back to the 70s and they had a discourse about, I suppose, the word in Canada was multiculturalism. We love we love that term over here in Wasgood. She cites the US Equal, uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and Affirmative Action as well. All of these things, to me, uh, mean the same thing, Tocos says. People wanting the same consideration, the same respect, no matter how you label the project. And in each case, Tocos points out, there has been stubborn resistance. The opponents, Tocos says, uh, are generally afraid of what they perceive as a loss of influence or status. Quote, I'm not a psychologist, but I will tell you uh, but I will tell you what I've read about the topic that is is that they tend to be very fearful slash fearful xenophobic, she says. And they like the way things were when you could say whatever you want and offend whoever and face zero consequences. They see the power that they had inherited and reduce and and shrink and only getting worse as the demographics are changing. Unquote. Alluding to the mid-2040s estimate of when non-Hispanic white people are projected to account for less than 50% of the US population, she adds, it's a scary future for them. That's so sad. (laughs) Madison, too, says that people get freaked out when they fall for the line that DEI is about taking down the straight white guy rather than levelling the playing field. Working in sales, she encounters all kinds of misconceptions in this vein. I can't tell you how many times I'll be talking to a CEO who's worried that working with a DEI firm means we'll make them set quotas or become prolific LinkedIn commentators on issues of social justice or abandon their organization's core mission in the pursuit of DEI greatness. She says, I always tell them, listen, what we do is actually quite vanilla. We want to make sure your hiring process more accurately identifies who's the best fit for the role. We want to make sure your performance management system is actually evaluating someone's performance. And we want to teach managers methods to assign work more fairly, give higher quality feedback, and ensure they're not systematically ignoring members of their teams. The result, she explains, is that workplaces are more fair for everyone, not just people who are historically marginalised. Hence the word equity, ladies and gentlemen. Quote, it's rich that Elon Musk would post that diversity efforts make travel less safe given that the self-driving cars have been uh, given that self-driving cars have been found to be less likely to detect pedestrians with dark skin and women are more likely to be injured in car crashes because car safety mechanisms were historically built with male bodies as the norm, Madison says. One might imagine that if the teams building cars, self-driving or otherwise, were more diverse or at least thinking with a DEI mindset... This needs to work for all people. Travel would actually be safer. Unquote. Of course, Musk's claim that DEI makes trans- transportation less safe may be somewhat disingenuous to begin with, and possibly a screen for other sociological concerns he has frequently expressed. Musk often frets about declining birth rates, particularly in Western countries, and recently all but endorsed the Great, Repl- great Replacement Conspiracy Theory, the claim that nefarious forces are facilitating massive immigration of non-whites in order to speed the demographic of whites, which has inspired racist mass shooters. Love that. Florence, for one, draws a connection between such ideology and the DEI scare, mentioning the wave of legal actions around abortion, most notably the overturning of Roe v. Wade in 2022. God, that was two years ago. Crazy. Well, well nearly two years ago. Moments, uh, movements like the Christian quiverful theology, he, cl- he says, aim to, quote, 
uh, get mostly white folks to have larger families to ensure that they are not replaced in majority. <laughs> he continues. That is so fucking paranoid. I'm gonna have tons of children, so the so my white race continues. Like, that's just ah, uh, that's just a yikes. Oh gosh, come on, man. You don't. Uh, oh, imagine dedicating your life to doing that. Oh, so grimy. Oh, oh, I can't get my head around that. Anyway, oh god, I can't believe that's the theology. All right, um, they <laughs> he continues. Uh, they see how. Uh, many immigrants and minority families tend to be larger, and that scares them. Change is so hard for so many in general, and I feel like this uh, whole thing is a reaction to change and the accompanying fear, unquote. Even uh, a more symbolic shift can lead to spasms of outrage and violence. The cost recalls how arsonists attacked a black church after Barack Obama was elected as first black US president, uh, president of the US in 2008. This is a recurring phenomenon, she says. Whenever there's perceived progress from minorities, especially the ones that are visible, and it's happening again, uh, but it doesn't change the general trajectory. Is uh, but it doesn't change the general trajectory. Is that are more cut more and more of us? That's a weirdly worded sentence. But it doesn't change the general trajectory. Is that are more and more of us? That that's that's poorly worded, um, and will be kinder to the new racial minorities than they were with us. In the meantime, uh, DEI consultants and educators will have to try to move the needle while combating misinformation about what they do. Quote, business leaders are reacting to what they read about DEI, says Madison. And if they're reading all those horrible things about DEI, that needs to be countered with some very real explanations of what DEI work actually is. She says that peopleism strategies are data-driven and based on a ton of research about what sorts of processes and practices undermine bias and ultimately lead to more fair and thus diverse companies. They're not what many people have in mind when they conjure up images of DEI efforts, unquote. And according to the cost, some individuals simply can't be won over. So she focuses on those who are open to learning. Quote, in any audience, there is a bell curve, she says, noting uh, that, excuse me, on one far uh, side are people who, people for whom the session is redundant because they've already internalized the principles. The middle section is where most people are, she says. And uh, for them, the training, quote, will be new or will be shocking and it will be thought-provoking, unquote, leading them to re-examine past behavior. Then, at the other extreme, is the cohort that is, quote, there because they be there because they have to be and you will never win that over i'm not trying to win them over i'm not trying to boil the ocean she says that's an impossible task that's a great term i'm not trying to boil the ocean i should do that one day um that's an impossible task i accept that the people that people are going to be lost i'm focused on the middle and in all that middle i know some of them will have a light bulb go off i've seen it go off unquote and another quote to finish and i need to see those light bulbs go off in order to keep doing this work, and that's good. I'm glad. Um, I'm glad there are people that are really, you know, dedicated to this, and I feel like you know this is a very genuine um, and good faith act. Um, and I don't think I, I, I personally don't believe, you know, that this is about oh, get the whites out, get the whites out. No, no. It's just if people are there to be good at their job, and they just so happen to be white. That's fine too. If they're white and good at their job, they will get the job. The point of hiring practices and the racism, inherent racism that hiring practices have, I should know. (laughs) Um, 
I've been qualified for things, and I just don't get I just don't get a word in. It just doesn't happen. I don't know whether it's my location um, because I'm not based in London, or maybe it's just because hello mixed race. I mean, it, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I'm sure there's been a few over the years where they've just gone, uh, oh, they see a Charlie Taylor, they think white, and then they see my face, and it's like, uh, bin. I'm sure. I'm sure it's happened. I'm sure it's happened before. I'm sure it's happened before. So, that is the case of that, right? If they just so, if regardless, regardless of who they are, this is a humanist act, okay? This is not a thing based on you know, what is an antiquated thing, which is race and, and uh, you know, ethnicity and all that kind of stuff. It's, 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 mute, it's moot. It should be moot when it comes to hiring practices. You want to hire the best person, do you not? Then fucking do it. But these people don't have that attitude. They don't have that attitude. They see a brown face and they freak the fuck out in their head. They may not actually do that, but they do. It's just whiteness. They just don't... Sometimes they don't even clock it. They really don't... They think they're doing it. They think they're doing the... Oh, we're, we're, we're hiring the best people. We, we are hiring the best people. It's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're hiring the best white people. And sometimes those white people suck. And DEI is just about changing that up. It's all it is. If they just so happen to be a lot of black people, then I don't know what to tell you. Some of you might need to strip your game up, but I'm sure that ain't the case. I'm sure that ain't the case. I bet there's great white people, whatever job it is. I'm sure there's great Asian people, whatever job that is, um, in this conversation. But the moral panic is is obviously the main thing here. And um, yeah, I just I just need people to stop getting in their own heads. And um, actually embrace the concepts, um, or at least understand the concepts, because people didn't understand. People don't understand critical race theory, but yet they kept going. In especially in the US, they kept going to schools talking about it in high schools. They don't teach it in fucking high school, you fucking dummy! Like it's just crazy. And DEI is not a more blacks less whites initiative that's not what it is that's not what it is so yeah anyway it's all about understanding guys all about understanding So ladies and gentlemen, we finished with life, and uh, I'll be honest, I've had to call an audible no, as I record, uh, because the piece I originally had, um, I couldn't get a full version of it, um, so they don't get that shine, is what it is. So I thought I'd talk about something that is, uh, you know, re- relatively fresh, that uh, came down yesterday, and um, obviously important to me if you know me. So this is called Hashtag Justice for Windrush campaign launched by leading celebrities. This is via The Voice. That's Jab uh, A host of well-known celebrities have launched a new campaign to put pressure on the Home Office to speed up its payment of compensation to people affected by the Windrush scandal. Baroness Doreen Lawrence, actor and campaigner Colin McFarlane, singer, rapper and producer AJ Tracy, 
Songwriter campaign Annie Lennox, uh, along with leading charities and campaigners, have to date launched hashtag justice for Windrush. I'm not going to say a hashtag after this. Calling for swift and full government conversation for the Windrush generation. That's going to be interesting once, um, hopefully, uh, once Labour come through. Um, because they've been really trying to, you know, just be like, oh no, the, oh the 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 Tory government are treating, you know, Windrush generation so horribly. Da, 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 da. I need day one. I need day one words on this. I'm gonna need that. I'm gonna need that day one word. I'm like, when, where, when is that conversation coming? When? Give me a date. Give me a specific date when that can happen. Because if they don't do that in the first week, get fucked. I mean, just get fucked regardless, but <laughs> get even more fucked, in my mind. Anyway. An open letter signed uh, by Serbia supporters has been if- issued to both uh, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, urging the government to speed up conversation for victims of the recent, recent Windrush scandal. That now underscores un- ongoing issues with the 2019 conversation scheme, so that's nearly fucking four years, five years ago nearly, uh, which was aimed at addressing wrongful de- uh, detentions, deportations, job losses, homelessness, and denial of essential services. Many, despite lawful with residents since the 1950s and 60s, were incorrectly labelled as illegal immigrants by the Home Office. The campaign group is also calling for legal aid to be granted to those who are hoping to make claims against the Home Office. More than fifty, uh, more than forty, sorry, uh, Windrush victims had died while waiting for compensation uh, and justice for Windrush. Uh, justice for Windrush. Don't know why it's t- twisting my tongue a bit. Campaigners say the Home Office's uh, recent abandonment of Windrush transformation team in Jube, Jube. I'm assuming I'm at June, Jube. Um, has only added uh, to the anguish felt by families and individuals affected by the Windrush scandal. The Conversation Scheme's architect, Attorney Martin Ford, uh, joined the campaign after expressing frustration with how the Conversation Scheme has been managed. He said, quote, The Windrush Conversation Scheme has left many victims in a state of limbo. We've heard stories of individuals being wrongly de- denied tens of thousands of pounds worth of conversation, and of, the, and of families whose lives have been torn apart while they await an outcome. This is unacceptable, and we are calling on the Home Office to move quickly to deliver compensation for el- eligible Windrushies. Unquote. The open letter highlights the fact that after the Windrush compensation scheme was launched in 2019, an estimated 15,000 were eligible. However, only 13.8% received compensation by January 2024. Excuse, excuse me. As of April 2023, 16% waited over a year for results. 7.5% of those eligible waited over 18 months. The denial uh, of legal aid by the Home Office has also complicated the justice process, and a mere £73.58 million pounds of that allocated 200, uh, £200 to £500 million, um, has reached victims. To rectify this, the Justice for Windrush campaign is calling on the government to, one, make full and swift compensation uh, for Windrush victims a Home Office priority, reinstating the transformation team and Windrush working group is crucial. Number two, to ensure its credibility with claimants, remove the Windrush compensation scheme from the Home Office and identify or create an independent or and neutral body or organisation to operate it and make appeal decisions. Number three, Direct the Home Office to ensure more transparent, independent oversight over its administration of the scheme, including quarterly detailed republic, uh, detailed public reports on the scheme's operation by the independent assessor. Number four, 
ensure that legal aid is guaranteed to all eligible claimants. Number five, lower the burden of proof for claims uh, and compensate fully uh, for losses and impact on life, regardless of the complexity. Number six, stop deportations. Trust is gone. So many have been deported in error. Already traumatized victims need to feel safe to come forward. Number seven, end decades-long history of covert racist immigration laws and bring bring an end to the hostile environment immigration policy. And number eight, pledge full compensation to Windrush victims as part of its forthcoming general election manifesto. Commenting on the campaign, actor Colin McFarlane said... Uh, quote, the Home Office scandal that impacted the Windrush generation is not over yet. Uh, over Yet 90% of the country think it is. 2022, a leaked internal report commissioned by the Home Office revealed that during the period uh, 1950 to 1981, every single piece of immigration of ci- or citizenship legislation was designed at least in part to reduce the number of people with black or brown skin who were permitted to live and work in the UK, unquote. He added uh, 2012's hostile environment policy has exacerbated this institutional racism, resulting in over 15,000 victims and rising. The woeful 2019 compensation scheme has added insult to injury and many prolonged the trauma and is yet another illustration of decades-long discrimination by the Home Office against migrants of colour. We need justice for the Windrush generation now. Drawing support for campaigners uh, and celebrities across entertainment industries such as Eddie Marson, Jasmine Flowers, Jay Blades, Hannah Waddingham, Adrian Lester. And with the participation of Windrushies, the Justice for Windrush campaign has a number of key activation points. Uh, the video release uh, later this month um, of an exclusive re-recording of Why by Annie Lennox features celebrity campaign supporters. Uh, the film, uh, the launch of a film entitled The Home Office Scandal on the life of Windrush victim and World War II veteran... Uh, Flight Sergeant, I'm assuming, FLT, Flight Sergeant, uh, Peter Brown, and a social media campaign fronted by high-profile supporters promoting why and featuring the hashtag Justice for Windrush banner. So yeah, that's um, obviously a pretty uh, buying the numbers, um, <laughs> just you know, kind of like press releasey type of uh, type of thing going on there, um, but important nonetheless. And um, I really hope this uh, new push. Um, provides results um, because you know I've talked about this for years now on this pod and um, it's always extremely disheartening and uh, I I just say this man I I have no no respect no respect for the Tory party You, you, you guys know this it's a standard procedure I wake up I wake up with a middle finger to the stories. <laughs> I, just, I just wake up with it, right? Labour, Tory light, as I call them. This is an easy dub. <laughs> Easiest W you ever fucking get. Take it. Take the dub. Compensate these people before they all fucking die. Because it's depressing of the amount of people that have been traumatised in this way. Live their entire lives here. As British citizens. Gone through everything that has gone on since. Since um, since the HMS Windrush ported in East Tilbury. Going through all that. As, and to the point where they can actually say they're British or just, you know, be comfortable with where they're at in their identity within themselves to then 
be traumatized, jailed, deported even, left homeless, had their lives just stripped from them, is fucking demonic. Labor, Tory Light, take the dub as soon as you get in there. As soon as you get there. Day dot. Give the money. Compensate these people. Easiest dub you will ever get. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, we'll leave it there. From the 5 p.m., I'll be charged to this spin good. Intro music has been too much private now. Thanks to Joe Music for the to use the track. You can find both their links in the full show notes. And thanks to Brandon Ivy Nappy High for all the abilities charismatic for the interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I should always try and do the same. But until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.